This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Kathy Penn, a Baha'i from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, who discovered the Baha'i faith in Bolivia and found her true calling in teaching children. I started the interview by asking Kathy to describe where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania, a short distance out of Philadelphia, in the, on what they call the main line. And I have four brothers and sisters, so it was kind of a large family, two brothers and two sisters. And uh, we were raised Catholic, and so we had a um, very... I think very strict kind of upbringing mm. in that family. Strict in what way? I think that my, my parents were are very religious, mm-hmm. and so they were very Catholic, and we mm-hmm. we uh, you know went to church every Sunday, mm-hmm. and even I think further than that, my mother especially really tried to raise us with a lot of religious upbringing, in mm-hmm. that she, she reinforced what was taught in the church. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, when you say strict, you mean in a, uh, a very religious upbringing, but not necessarily strict in intolerance or something like that? Well, I think that also we were given strict boundaries as to what we could do and what we couldn't do mm. in, in many ways. We didn't, we didn't have some of the freedoms that other children might have had. I think, I think that my parents um, raised us in a, in a way in that they really wanted us to get a good education and also be very be pure and and so they didn't like for especially the girls i mean we weren't allowed to go out at night and mm-hmm. until late or things like that we had definite curfews we had definite uh, boundaries to our lives i you know i appreciate that now mm-hmm. having had my own children i appreciate that that we were given those boundaries and mm-hmm. uh it was it was a pretty interesting upbringing because as we were, while we were younger, we felt like we were having a, a very normal upbringing. But then things happened in our family later in our family, and and my mother actually had to be hospitalized when I was a teenager for mm. depression. Mm. And so the family changed quite dramatically in that time. Yeah, how, how did it change? Well, uh, for one thing, we didn't stay at home. Uh, my younger sister and I were were sent to, to stay with my aunt for one summer, I remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, at other times, my grandmother would come and stay with us. It really kind of, it was in the, the 70s, in the time when the Vietnam War was happening. And uh, my older brother, my oldest brother, was uh, number two in the draft. Mm. <laughs> and he was being sent to Vietnam and really didn't want to go there and was also flunking out of college. So he really had to go. And so... Rather than go, he actually escaped the country mm-hmm. and went to Canada. It really, I think, 70s, 
sent my mother into a, a very deep state of depression. And why, 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 why is that? Uh, well, because uh, my brother really felt like he had to completely leave and change his complete identity. So he never he didn't get in touch with the family for oh, eight years. Oh, right, right. And so, so it was like losing that, her son. It was definitely like losing yeah, her son. Yeah, yeah. And so he, he wasn't in contact with the family for quite a long time. I actually ended up having various drug problems and, and, and difficulties during that time. And even before that time, really had those difficulties even while living at home. But I think because of his, his absence, it really, you know, hurt my mother deeply, mm. and she had a uh, nervous breakdown. And, mm. and that really changed our family dramatically. I was, I was about 15, roughly 15 at that time. And the next year at school, I was able to apply for a scholarship because I, one of the things that I really wanted to do was to travel abroad. And perhaps because of all the difficulties in my family and, the, and not really having my mother at home made me feel like I wanted to break free, mm-hmm. break out. So I applied for this scholarship and the year, one of the years that my mother was in the hospital, I, uh, I did get this scholarship to go to South America for a year. And so at 16, I uh, went to South America and did my senior year of high school there. Also, I think was something that dramatically uh, affected my life because I actually met my first husband while I was on that year in South America. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I, after I came back to the United States after that year, he came to the United States and we married. Mm. So I married at a very young age. I was 18 when I had my first marriage. Mm. Where was your father during these, these times? Well, my father was at home trying mm. to keep the family somewhat together, but I think it was very difficult for him at that time. He was also, he had just started a new company. He was a physicist and he had developed a new microchip, which was quite, at that time, quite cutting edge, mm. and had started a new company to manufacture these, these chips. And while well, my mother was hospitalized, it really affected deeply his company because after a while the insurance ran out and, and in the end he had to sell the company. So things changed very much for him. And during that time it was, it was hard for him because he had always spent so much of his time in his work and, and traveling, didn't really have a lot of experience of being home and taking care of households, and that's why he really enlisted the help of our grandparents and aunts and uncles to help us during this time. And so we, we spent time at different places, and, or we had different people in the house taking care of us or taking care of the household at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Did you get married as soon as you got back? Well, I actually didn't, not right away. I came back and was still going to school, and then my first husband came here mm-hmm. and to the United States, and we married here. Mm-hmm. Then we embarked on several different uh, exciting journeys. We actually traveled from New York to Bolivia uh, by land. Oh, really? Yeah, that was quite an adventure. What trip. was the route? <laughs> well, we, we traveled all through the East Coast down to to Texas, and and then from there, went. Once you get into Central America, into past Mexico, we did spend some time in Mexico. Actually, mm-hmm. we took a Mexican friend with us, and he lived in Merida, and we spent a couple of months there, a couple of weeks, I should say, there, traveling around and getting to know that place. And 
from there, we went on the Pan American Highway, which really actually goes all the way through Central America and South America. Mm. It's, and at that time, in the 70s, it was the only road <laughs> that, <laughs> that went all the way through these areas. So it was the main highway. And we had a little Datsun pickup truck, which we built a big camper on the back mm-hmm. and went down in that. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to get down to it Bolivia? Just two, two months, mm-hmm. <laughs> two months yeah. driving. And that was pretty much, we drove a lot. We didn't mm-hmm. really, and when we went through different countries, we didn't really stop that much in different countries a day at most mm-hmm. because my ex-husband was intent on getting to to Bolivia. So we... Yeah. After Mexico, we really didn't stop that much. Mm-hmm. So when he came back up to the U.S. initially after you were spending your senior year in Bolivia, was it his intention to stay, or was it was this the plan sort of all along? Well, I think we had plans all along of going back to Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, the, the time that I spent in Bolivia and after we went back, I spent six more years there, so I, t- mm-hmm. I spent a total of seven years in, in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. And I really, it, it was a country that really resonated with my heart, mm-hmm. you know? When, when I lived there, it was a quite in a primitive state. Now it has really developed quite significantly compared to when I lived there. But it was much, much less developed when I was there, and I really, I enjoyed that simplicity and that kind of life. Mm-hmm. And... It really resonated, I think, with my spirit. And actually, I had so many, so much spiritual awakening in in Bolivia that I think it became home to me. Mm-hmm. And also, I had two children there. Mm-hmm. I, uh, two children were born there. And I think wherever your children are born uh, really becomes very much a part of yourself, a part of your life. And, mm. and that, that place really, I think, because my children were born there also... I, I felt very, very close to Bolivia. I really in, loved the culture. I loved the people. Such warmth, such friendliness the people had there. And I thought it was quite different than the American lifestyle, which was becoming more and more isolated, where, mm. where you, you, could, you could live in America for a long period of time and feel very isolated, whereas in Bolivia you really couldn't feel that way because family, friends were always around you there. Mm-hmm. So what did you do when you first got there? Well, actually, I taught English and Spanish. I taught English in, a, in an English-speaking institute. And then after a while, I, I, um, my Spanish became quite good. And so I spoke Spanish. I taught Spanish to Americans who would come there to work in large corporations. There were some large oil corporations there and other corporations that I would teach some of the executives to speak, in, to speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that for for many years, actually, I did that. Even while my children were were small, it was quite an advantage to be able to teach this way because I could do it, you know, a few hours a day. I could also fit it into their schedule, and I could also have students come to my house, which was very nice. Mm -hmm. And in that time, my ex-husband and I also started a, a photographic studio. So we had a photographic studio in Bolivia, and so we lived off of off of that as well. It was a wonderful. We took some technology from the from the United States, which didn't exist in Bolivia yet. Actually, the 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 technology of of doing photography and and the, having a roll of film developed, mass producing photographs was not really well known in Bolivia when we were there in the beginning. And so 
he had one of the first studios that would would develop whole rolls of film that way. Usually people had to send their rolls of film to Brazil or Argentina, but after he opened this studio, we people were able to get their film developed in Bolivia. Hmm. Okay. The photography, I guess it was a commercial business, so was it advertising? What was and, the... And the, and the beginning, it was really kind of almost just retail in that, in that people would, you know, they would take a roll of film, we would develop it for them. Oh, okay. Um, but we did do some advertising. We, we loved the idea of getting into doing some kind of creative photography ourselves. We had mm-hmm. a, a nice collection of cameras that we had acquired, and we wanted to use that. So we did do some photography that way. And actually, later, when I came back to the United States, by myself, a single parent, I ended up, I, I did work for advertising <laughs> firms mm-hmm. here in the United States. So I think some of the experience that I gained there really helped that as well. Right. You were in Bolivia for six years. Yes, I was in Bolivia for six years. And as my marriage began to fail, I realized that as, a, as a, our situation became more critical with my ex-husband and I, I really wanted to leave the country and come back to where my family was with mm-hmm. my children. And my husband felt disinclined to allow me to leave the country. Mm-hmm. And in that time, the man, and I think this still exists in Bolivia and in many other countries around the world, the, the man is really the father of the children and the one that has all the say. And the wi- woman, although she is the mother, really doesn't have any say on where the children can or cannot live. Mm-hmm. And so it was uh, not possible for me to just decide to leave and take my children with me. They really belonged to the father. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this created a really difficult situation for me. And I stayed in Bolivia for some time and separated from my husband. But it was very difficult life for someone who was living alone, a woman living alone with children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I really needed to come back. And this was one of the times in my life that I felt really... I would I would call it divine assistance or some kind of spiritual guidance that came to me, and that was when I was I was uh, driving down the street one day and feeling quite hopeless, like I would never be able to get out of this country. I had explored a couple of things, and nothing seemed to, you know, be a possibility. Lawyers told me there was nothing I could do. My husband was very disinclined to sign the papers to let the children leave the country with me. And so I was driving down the street one day, and I was feeling this despair, this overwhelming despair, as though I would never be able to to leave. And I began to cry, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't even drive. I'm crying so much. So I pulled the car over, and I was weeping and weeping and weeping. And really, in that weeping, just beseeching God to help me, because I, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I, couldn't, I didn't feel like I could remain there. And when I composed myself and looked up, I realized I was sitting right in front of the American consulate Mm. in the same block as the American consulate. And Mm. so I got out of my car and I went into the American consulate and I asked them. Actually, it was a woman who was the consulate officer at that time in Bolivia. And uh, I went and asked if I could meet with her and they let me in to meet her. And I just, you know, burst out crying and said, please, you know, help me, I have to get out of the country. And she sat me down, she said they'd only tried it twice before in Bolivia, and it had not been successful. In other words, that someone had found out, and the 
Bolivian authorities had stopped the process, and so she was very worried that it wouldn't work again. But I really in- begged her <laughs> to help me, <laughs> yeah. and um, finally she agreed. And she wrote down on a little piece of paper an address, and she said, go to this address, and this man will tell you what you need to do. And so I went to this address, and it was the, it was the it, travel agency. Mm-hmm. And uh, I showed the man. She had written me a little note on a piece of paper, and I gave it to the travel agent. And he said, come with me. He took me into a back room. And he sat me down, and he said, okay, I'm going to give you a list of things that you have to do, and you have to do them today and quickly, as quickly as you can. And then he said, well, when do you want to leave? And I said, well, maybe a week or two because I have to you know, settle some affairs, and I had rent, we were renting a big house, so I had, you know, a large house, I had a lot of things, I had two children, and I said, you know, give me about two weeks. So he said, okay, you have to get Bolivian passports for your children, because one of the smart things that I did, at least, was that I did have American passports for my children, Mm. and that was something that really helped me. Mm -hmm. Um, I always, I, somebody told me that whenever your children are born abroad, you should just get them American passports right away. So, so I, why, I did, why did he want Bolivian passports? Because the idea was that I was going to leave Bolivia with Bolivian passports, and then I was to get rid of those passports while on the plane and get off the passports with the American passport. Or get off the plane with the American passports. Mm. And this was how I was going to be able to leave the country, because they were going to get me the visas to leave Bolivia, but I would have to have the Bolivian passports, and that would be the way that, the, that nobody would question that the children were leaving as the visitors. I see. And that, that they were leaving and they would be coming back, you know, that they were, they were Bolivians and they mm-hmm. would be coming back and they were able to move. Mm-hmm. So I, I got those passports for them, and, and then I was... Well, I was getting the passport. This is what happened, actually. I came home from this, this meeting with this man and thought, oh, my gosh, I have so many things to do. And I walked in the door, and the phone was ringing. And he said, did you start doing the things yet? It was this man on the phone. He said, did you start doing these things yet? And I said, no, not yet. And he said, well, start, because you're leaving tomorrow. So and did so- he, do you think he intentionally did not tell you that when you saw him? I don't know if he intentionally didn't tell me that when I saw him, but I know that he thought about it when oh, I left wow. and must have, maybe he conferred with the council, consulate oh. officer, but what they decided was that I should leave as soon as possible so that no one else would find out that I was leaving. Because one of the things he told me was that I was not to tell anyone that I was leaving mm-hmm. because they didn't want anyone to know. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, I got all these pa- this paperwork, and I had the only thing that I had was a car that was in my name. In Bolivia, I really didn't have any money, but I had this car, and so I went to the money changers who used to sit on the corner in the center square of Bolivia, and I said, "I have that car, and would you buy it from me for cash?" The man said, "Yes, I'll buy it from you," and so he gave me money to buy this car, and I remember taking the money. It was like two bagfuls of Bolivian money. <laughs> And taking it to the travel agent to buy the tickets, the airline tickets for my children and I to come back from Bolivia mm-hmm. the next day. It was just a very dramatic process, sure. yeah. you know. And yeah. we let the the actually the plane. We I had to be at the airport at, at now. How did you get the, How did you get the Bolivian passport so quickly? I don't remember exactly the whole process, but there were people who did this, and I was also given that address. 
I see. And I got these passports. I remember going to the center square where people take would take pictures of you. You know, they used to have those people who sat in the square taking pictures of people with those old-fashioned kind of cameras. And my kids sat on the bench, and they took pictures of them. And I used those pictures to, because they didn't have kinkos or things like that in those days, especially in Bolivia. But they would develop those little pictures in the back of the camera very quickly, (laughs) and then they would give it to you. And I took those pictures and... Someone made me Bolivian passports in the back room of somewhere. <laughs> I, think, I think it was part of the travel agent, mm. you know, the whole outfit of the travel agent. They took care of that. And so I got the Bolivian passports very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then all the stamps or whatever I needed, the visas or the... That was all taken care of by the consulate officers. I don't know how they did it. Mm. But I know that when I went to the airport that night with my children... And I couldn't take anything with me because nobody knew that I was leaving. And so I had to, to leave with nothing. Mm. I had nothing for my children. I had nothing for myself. We had no change of clothing. We just got on the plane. How old, were the, ki- how old were the kids? My children were two and three at that time. Mm. So they were very young. We had to go, go to the airport at almost midnight. It was, the plane didn't leave till 12, 15 at night. It was you know, very late. So the kids were, I think my youngest was even sleeping in my arms, if I remember correctly. But the consulate officer was there at the airport waiting for me. And there was also another man who I didn't know. And several people, she said, that were all around the airport. So it was a very dramatic process, you know. They were there to protect me and to help me get get out of the country. It it happened without a problem. Now when my ex-husband found out to two weeks later, because we weren't living in the same house at that time. So I had told the maid in my house, I had a maid, everyone in those days in Bolivia had maids, and I had a maid who I told that I was going to a special, it was a day of the Virgin, a celebration of the Virgin that happened in, the, in a different town of Bolivia, and that I was going to, much of the town would leave and go to that celebration. So mm-hmm. I told her that my children and I, we're going to go to this town and go to that celebration that next day, and we would be gone for a day or two, mm-hmm. and she shouldn't worry about us if we were gone. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't know we were leaving, although I did leave her money. I told her, I, I left you some money on the fridge. And then my ex-husband found out about a week later, I believe, you know, a week or ten days later, that I had actually left the country. He finally figured it out that I didn't come back, <laughs> and the maids, he finally kept he went there to pick up the children, and they weren't there. And then they, so they figured that I had gone back to the states. And what he ended up doing was trying to sue the American consulate, which didn't work at all. Mm. They, uh, he, he lost that lawsuit, of course, but but he tried. Um, yeah. How long did that drag out for? The lawsuit, I, I really don't know. Yeah. I wasn't really aware because I was in this country. I do know that they. They did remove his green card and his privileges for coming to this country for a year and a half. They, someone got in touch with me here, and I don't know whether it was, it was someone with the consulate office or somewhere had gotten in touch with me to tell me that he would not be able to come to this country for a year and a half mm. and that he had lost his green card as well, mm. which he had gotten when we lived here before. Yeah. So, but we ended up coming back to this country, and, you know, it, I always... I'm able to help women who are in difficult situations now because I have been through that. Mm-hmm. I feel that 
there was a great reason for it. And when I, whenever I come into contact with women who are having difficult problems or having violent marriages with their husbands, because there was violence in my marriage and mm-hmm. my first marriage, and I've, mm-hmm. I'm able to help women who are living in those kind of situations now and tell them that there, there is hope for the future because certainly my future became much brighter after that. And I met the man that I'm married to now who is a wonderful person mm-hmm. and an excellent husband. And mm-hmm. So I'm always able to show that there is a brighter side after a difficult time in your mm-hmm. life. Yeah. yeah. So what did you do when you got back to the United States? Uh, well, when I got back to the United States with two children... Um, it was very difficult because I hadn't lived here for so many years. I felt that the actually the culture shock coming back to this country was worse than the culture shock that I had going to South America. Yeah. I, I, um, it was almost like going 50 years in advance <laughs> because yeah. I had been living in such a, a less developed country for so long to come back to the United States, which already was much more developed, much more ahead of its time, than Bolivia anyway, it just felt like, to me, that much more advanced. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, I think, difficult to get used to such a materialistic society again, mm-hmm. to find my place in it and what I was going to do. And it wasn't easy. I lived, we lived with my parents for almost nine months, my children and I. Mm-hmm. You know, thank God for loving and wonderful families who are able to take you in. By that time, of course, my mother had recovered from any depression that she had. She was suffering earlier and was doing very well and living in Philadelphia with my father. And so I was able to go and live with with them. Hmm. Um, They were actually at that time living with my grandfather because my grandmother had passed away, and so they went to live with my my grandfather. So there were four generations living in that household for a while. Well, that's great (laughs) for the kids. It was very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great for the kids. I think it was a little wearing on my grandfather's nerves. <laughs> he wasn't yeah. used to having young children around. Plus, it's, it's tough for you, too, because it's tough have, living with parents because you never you never stop being their, their child, you know. It was very difficult, especially since they didn't know that they, they didn't really see me grow up. I had almost done mm. so much of my growing up in in Bolivia, you know, mm-hmm. far away. Yeah. And so then I came home with two children, and it was a different situation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, thank God we all made it through, and my children and I uh, finally got an apartment on our own and started to started to really uh, do much better. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, my father helped me to get a job here. He, had, he knew someone who was in advertising and was able to recommend me for a job in a small advertising firm. And so I ended up working in advertising for for several years until I made the switch to graphic design and then worked in graphic design for 13 years and even had my own uh, studio for a little while doing, you know, freelancing and doing graphic design. So you've been an artist? I have. I have for many years worked in that field. I must say that it wasn't a very fulfilling thing to do. I did it and started to do it, obviously, because I needed to have a job that that helped with two children and helped to have health insurance. And so I was really looking for a job that was enough to, to sustain us. And advertising can be a good field to get into for that. But I really wasn't 
fulfilled working with large corporations and that whole materialistic scene of trying to sell people things through advertising and really didn't like it at all and sure. always wanted to work with children. That was mm-hmm. my that was my love, mm-hmm. that I really wanted to work with children. And, and as a Baha'i, I was able to do that by working on the National Education Task Force for many years and helping to develop a curriculum for the spiritual education of children mm-hmm. by teaching my own children and, and the children of others spiritual education on uh, on Sundays. I really was able to at least fulfill that in some part, but I always had this yearning to work with children full-time, mm. always wanted to teach children. And so later, when my ch- my own children were grown, I was finally able to go back and get some Montessori training mm. and ended up learning the Montessori method, and now I'm working in a uh, Montessori school teaching early childhood education to three- to six-year-olds, and I'm really enjoying that very much. Mm. Really feel like it is a fulfillment of a desire to work full-time with children, love watching them grow and and make realiza- realizations and learn to read and all of these wonderful things and, and develop their character. Yeah. So which of those two interests seemed to blossom most when you were younger, art or relating to children? Well, I think I use both. I use... Um, it's amazing how much I use the art background working with children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I end up in the classroom using a lot of, I find myself always creating activities for the children artistically, you know, mm-hmm. and creating activities for them to express themselves creatively. And so I love both, mm-hmm. I must say. And I also still do a lot of graphics in that I love to make little things, little gifts for people. Mm. And so I do make a lot of things, bookmarks and wall hangings and little things that I can give people um, using my art. So I always have a hand in it mm-hmm. at, uh, in, in some way. But I must say my real love is having a hand in the, in the development of children, you know, the, the social, the spiritual, and know, whole development of children, educational development of children. Hmm. How old were your children when you ran into the Baha'i faith? I actually became a Baha'i in Bolivia. I found out about the Baha'i faith when my marriage was crumbling. I felt the need. You know, that's another interesting part of my my development in Bolivia, because as I told you, I was raised Catholic, Mm-hmm. And but I really turned away from Catholicism early in my early teenage life. I felt I couldn't believe that my friends who were Jewish, um, and I had several Jewish friends, that they weren't going to go to heaven. And I think that that's, that was very prominent in the thinking of Catholics at that time, was that people of other religions would not be having the same end as they would. And I just didn't believe that. I just couldn't couldn't abide the fact that my friends wouldn't be able to be in heaven with me. And so I decided that Catholicism wasn't really for me. But I, when I met my first husband, he really had turned away from Catholicism. And he was sort of, a lot of young people in South America were leftist and against the the harsh right-wing regimes, regimes that that were ruling in, in 
countries like South America, where many, many poor people were taken advantage of, and many, many poor people were um, just not taken account, taken into account in any way. And so we're, we were both constantly working for the poor mm. in Bolivia, and very much sympathizers with with the poor and the leftist movement mm-hmm. in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, I really felt like I was an atheist. I didn't mm-hmm. believe in God. I just didn't have any... I didn't believe in my religion, so I felt like I really didn't believe in God. So for many years, I didn't practice any religion. And when my marriage started to crumble, I think I found in myself that I really didn't stop believing in... I had never stopped believing in God. I just didn't have a, a way that was satisfying to express it. Hmm and that I really wanted to find that. And so I saw something on TV once about a religion, and I had remembered that I had met this man once who had said something to me, and I should follow up on it. And this man was someone that I had met, and I said to him, he was an American, and I said, why are you in Bolivia? And he said, well, I'm here because I'm a Baha'i. And Baha'is go to all different places in the world. And I said to him, well, what's a Baha'i? And he said, well, there's a spiritual springtime happening in the world. And we believe that religion has been renewed. And I immediately believed him. (laughs) I, Hmm. I immediately, it immediately resonated with me. I said, I knew it. I really said, I felt that in my heart. I said, I believe that. And he said, we believe that all the religions came from the same God and that every, from age to age, God sends a new messenger to, to renew the religion. And I said, oh, that definitely resonates with me. Mm. And he said, this is the springtime that we've been waiting for. And I said, you are right. <laughs> and so I immediately in my heart, it was, a, it was just that instant, the recognition for me. Mm. Now, I didn't immediately become involved in the Baha'i community but I did immediately believe it to mm-hmm. be truth. Mm-hmm. So I went to gatherings in Bolivia for some time, but while I was still married to my husband, I could not really investigate it thoroughly because he really was against it. In fact, I remember somebody gave me a prayer book, and I had this prayer book in, in a certain place, and he, one day I realized it was gone, and I asked him, where's this prayer book? And he said, I threw it away. Mm-hmm. So that's how much he he really opposed it and tried to keep me from it. So it was really after we separated that I was able to more go to meetings and learn about it. But I never became thoroughly involved in the activities of the community until I came to this country. Now his opposition was because it was a religion and he was yes. an atheist? Yes, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. That now this was just another silly thing and why 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 was I getting involved in that and mm. You know, we we didn't believe in religion, and so why why were we why was I looking at that? Why was I even investigating that? Mm. So, which is one of the reasons why we, you know, of course, separated was <laughs> there was very little freedom in that marriage. It was right. very difficult. Yeah. So you were going to Baha'i activities there in Bolivia after you I went separated. To, I went to I went to several uh, activities, firesides and and several deepening kind of activities where we would read the Baha'i writings together and discuss the meaning. But I never really became active, actively involved in, in, the, in the activities of the faith 
in Bolivia because I, w- I had two children, I was busy, and I was really very worried about getting out of the country. I mean, I mean, that was constant occupation on my mind. And I think until I was able to leave there and come back here to the United States and feel a little more settled, then I could feel like I could really express myself. And that's, that's when I looked up the Baha'is here and became more involved with the Baha'i faith, mm. really, mm-hmm. after I came to this country. Yeah. After you did graphic design stent, what did you do? Well, interestingly, while I was doing graphic design, I felt like I really needed to to do it on a basis that I had more control over. And so I really always had this longing to do freelancing, you know, to work on my own. And so at one point, my, my husband, this is now my second husband, Michael, who I have been married to now for 22 years, and we have a wonderful marriage, wonderful relationship. He actually, when I met Michael, really fell in love with my children, and mm. my children at that time were six and seven. And when we, after we got married, he adopted my children. So my children really know him as, as father, mm-hmm. as, their, as their father. Mm. Well, after many years, you know, after, oh gosh, when we came back here, after I had been working in graphic design for some time, Michael actually went to Landig Academy in Switzerland, which is a Baha'i-inspired university that was in Switzerland. And he went there for a year on his sabbatical. He works at a college as a professor, and having sabbatical every seven years has to figure out something to do during a sabbatical year. And during this one sabbatical year, he decided to go to Switzerland for a year. And so we decided that for that year he would go there and I would stay here. And uh, after he was there for three or four months, he called me back, called me from Switzerland and said, I think you should quit your job and come hmm. because I think I'm going to stay for two years. <laughs> <laughs> and so actually we ended up living in Switzerland. For He was there for two years and I was there with him for a year. Mm-hmm. And so we lived in Switzerland and... Uh, what and worked in this Baha'i-inspired university. Yeah, what was that like? Living in Switzerland was a wonderful experience. Because, mm-hmm. of course, once you're in, in Europe, you have access to so many different countries and can travel easily to different countries because they're mm-hmm. so close together. And so w- it was nice to be able to visit different countries. It was wonderful to be at this Baha'i-inspired university and be able to have contact with people from all over the world because it was an international university. And so the students that came there came from all parts of the world. And that was a wonderful experience. But I, I'm glad, though, that our time, in, I'm glad that our time in Switzerland was relatively short, because mm-hmm. Switzerland was not a country that I felt very much kinship with. Sure. It was difficult to uh, make friends with people. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like it was a much more rigid environment mm-hmm. very I, very different from Bolivia very different from Bolivia and very different from America actually mm-hmm. too and I think as an interracial couple it wasn't an easy place to live either Michael uh, is African-American mm-hmm. and m- myself as a white American I think it was we had some difficult situations in Switzerland that we hadn't even even experienced here in the United States we did have some opposition to our marriage 
from, for example, my own family. My grandfather would not allow Michael to come into the house. Oh, my gosh. And this, this was, you know, it was very difficult for us, but we really prayed about it. It was difficult because I had actually been living with my parents for so long, and my children were used to, once we were on our own, my children were, inter- were used to going to my mother and father's house every weekend to visit. Mm. And uh, once we were married, uh, not to be able to do that was difficult. I did it a few times without my husband yeah. until it didn't feel right to me. Sure. And I had to tell my parents, you'll have to come visit us because it doesn't feel right for me to visit without my husband. Yeah. But what was wonderful about it is that we had a lot of patience and, a, and we prayed about the situation. And we, it, I, I would say two years later, my grandfather finally came around. Mm-hmm. And he actually visited us in our apartment and brought us a wonderful wedding present because he didn't come to our wedding. Mm-hmm. That was a great source of sorrow for me that he wouldn't come to our wedding. But he did come and visit us later, mm-hmm. and that was wonderful that he did that. And he actually told Michael that he asked Michael to forgive him. He said he was sorry uh, that so much time had been lost and mm-hmm. that he could come any time. <laughs> what, so well, what, what do you think the uh, catalyst was for his changing his heart? You know, I think just age and this feeling that he was going to, that I just... I can't help feeling also that the prayers that we did mm. and, the pati- and the patience that we had with the situation mm-hmm. um, had an effect. Sure. And also that my, my children couldn't visit anymore, mm-hmm. you know, to his house uh, because I wasn't going to go without my husband. Sure. I'm sure it had an effect yeah. that he felt, you know, this really had split up the family. It had yeah. really made it difficult for him to be able to know his great-grandchildren, yeah. you know? And so I'm so glad for him and for us that he made that choice, yeah. finally. Yeah. So what was the experience in Switzerland in regards to your uh, marriage? Well, and so it was interesting because we always got a lot of stares and looks in Switzerland. <laughs> we lived in the German part of Switzerland, which is quite a bit more conservative than, say, the French section or the, the Italian sections, which were both much less rigid. There weren't many black people around. I don't remember seeing many at all. And, in fact, in the little town that we lived in, which was a little town called Haydn, Michael was the only African-American. He was the only black person mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting. I remember one day this really came to our our attention when we went to the bank in this little town and the doorman opened the door for us and said uh, good morning Dr. Penn <laughs> and we didn't know the doorman from Adam but he knew us uh, yeah. <laughs> so everyone in that town knew us but uh, we didn't know them <laughs> so it's obvious that that we You're were the talk of the town we were well known <laughs> yeah. and I don't think there was there wasn't hostility. I think it was just there was there was strangeness that people felt this was an oddity that there was there was this this couple here who was a, who were interracial. I think we did feel when we traveled to Austria, we felt some definite prejudice where people actually would move away from us. Oh boy! Yeah, definitely. We definitely felt that, mm-hmm. and 
we didn't spend too much time there because it did feel uncomfortable sure. for us to be there. Yeah. So but we always felt very wonderful at the university and the international people that we were in contact with always were very open to us. And so then you came back to the United States after a year and a half for you, and, or a year for you? Yes, in and Switzerland. We settled in Lancaster, Pennsylvania when we came back, which is where my husband's university is located. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a different kind of place from where we lived before because it's, it's more rural, and yet we live in the middle of the city of Lancaster. So it's a small city, a very small city, but very, the city itself is quite diverse. It's a nice place to live, actually. Mm. We're, we're enjoying it. Of course, this is where the Amish live in Lancaster, mm. in the county of Lancaster. So there are a lot of Amish uh, in the area. There is some closed-mindedness because of the way people are used to living here, kind of isolated farming kind of lives. Mm. But the city is changing rapidly and growing rapidly. And we find, and the university is growing rapidly into the city, and so we find that there are great possibilities here Mm. for real, real wonderful cultural diversity. We're enjoying our time here in Lancaster. Mm. Mm -hmm. So when you moved to Lancaster, what did you do for... Well, this is when we came back from Switzerland, Switzerland was really when I could decide uh, what I wanted to do more with my life as far as professionally because mm-hmm. my children were now out of the house my my they had both been through college and were out on their own living on their own and so that's when i decided really to go back for the montessori teacher training become certified in montessori training mm-hmm. and montessori teaching and really love teaching and the school that i live in we uh, that i work in is right on the grounds of the condominium we live in. Oh, how convenient. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, I had actually signed up for Montessori training, and we were signing the initial contract on this apartment. And we looked out the window and saw this building out there and said, wow, that looks like a school. And I said, I wonder what kind of school it is. Yeah, there's a playground. And so we went down and checked it out and found out that it was a Montessori school. And I was just enrolling in my Montessori training. And so when I had to do my year of internship, I went here and asked if I could have a job. And so I've been working here now for four years mm. and really, really enjoy it very much. Now, why did you choose the Montessori style of teaching? Well, when I, uh, that's, when I did come back from Switzerland, one of the things that I did was before I enrolled in the training was just I decided to teach Spanish again, which was very interesting. And I went to these couple of schools to teach Spanish to children because I heard that there was, a, there was an opening in a couple of schools nearby. And one of them was a Montessori school. And I was teaching Spanish to young children in this Montessori school. And I became interested in the, in the, uh, in the theory, Montessori theory, because I really loved the way the children behaved, and I loved the way the teachers interacted with the children, and the way the classrooms were set up was very appealing to me. The Montessori classrooms are generally extremely beautiful, and beauty is a big part of the environment in which you educate a child in the Montessori method. And so the, the classrooms are simple but beautifully designed 
the shelves are beautiful. Um, the Montessori materials themselves are quite attractive, made of wood and colorful, and are attractive to children's eyes. And I was very attracted to it. So I started reading up on it, and I read a couple of books, and that's what really enticed me to go for the training. Mm. And uh, it's really enabled me to meet wonderful, wonderful people. I find that many, actually many Montessori teachers are very similar to many of the teachers that I have met in the Baha'i faith. They have similar... Maria Montessori was very interested in children being the key to peace Mm. and that that children would be able to, if we worked with children who were really just people, you know, mankind in their young form, uh, if we helped them to understand peace and create a peaceful world, that we could change the whole world. And so her curriculum really revolves a lot around peace Hmm. and creating a peaceful environment for children and creating in their minds and hearts peace. I love that about it as well Mm. and was very attracted to that as a Baha'i, of course. Now, Kathy, how do you think your life might have turned out if you hadn't run into the Baha'i faith? Well, I think the Baha'i faith was so crucial. It has been so crucial to my life. I can't even imagine what my life would be like now without the Baha'i faith. I really feel like everything that I do now revolves around being a Baha'i because every thought that I have is influenced by the writings I I read every morning and every evening. And I really try to try my best to act in accordance with those writings. And so I can't even imagine, if I didn't have them, what I would be doing. One of my favorite prayers in the Baha'i faith has a, has a sentence in it that, that I love. May I, may I say it? Please. It, it goes like this. If it be thy pleasure, make me to grow as a tender herb in the meadows of thy grace, that the gentle winds of thy will may stir me up and bend me in, into conformity with thy pleasure in such wise that my movement and my stillness may be wholly directed by thee. So it, I, I, I love the idea of being moved and directed by God, and I feel that as a Baha'i, I can do that, that I feel very directed by, by my service to the Baha'i faith and very guided by it. And I only hope that my movement and my stillness is directed by God. Mm-hmm. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. So, All right, Warren. Thanks so much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kathy Penn, a Baha'i and Montessori teacher from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
The day he left her, she couldn't speak. Stared out the window the better part of a week. She'd lived her life through him for such a long time. When she looked inside herself, she wasn't sure what she'd find. She had to open the door a little wider now. She had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow. She walked into the fire, alone and scared stiff. Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift. Little Jamie's body has never worked right. He's never had the of sleeping straight through the night. His parents get weary and his parents get worn. Still, they always bless the day that little Jamie was born. He opens the door a little wider now, lifts them up a little higher somehow. It may look to the world. Like a twenty-four-hour shift, but his folks know life with Jamie is just a strangely wrapped gift. What is it that we're really made of? How else will we ever know? Till the hand puts us in the fire. Do we burn or do we On my doorstep, looks sad and forlorn. The wrapping paper's faded; it's all tattered and torn. For a moment, I wonder what on earth it might be. Till I see the tag and realize it's made out to me. It's gonna open the door a little wider now. Lift me up a little higher somehow. I used to run like the blazes. Now I get the drift. Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift. Someone who loves me. Someone who really, really. Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.